All right, now, how many angels can you fit on the pin of a head? A question you've been dying to know the answer to. Welcome to episode three of Ex Umbra's podcast. I'm uh, here with uh, Skullark McClary and none other than the one and only Schoolman Fawcett. I can't wait to find out how many angels you can fit on a pinhead. Um, <laughs> on the head of a pin. That's why we're all. That's why we're here. Pin of a head. Yeah. yeah. And basically, the last um, few sessions we've been talking about uh, anticipation. So, uh, angelology in the, with the Greek thought. Also, looking in the Old Testament. Uh, last time we met, we were chatting about angels in the New Testament, and now we're looking at the Christian era. How do Christian thinkers conceive of, interact with? And um, what do we make of angels? And uh, yeah, yeah. What is all the stuff we've been talking about? What does it really mean? And you know, that's that's what uh, Christian theology over the next few centuries hashes out. But not just Christian theology, also Christian art, Christian literature, uh, Christian political thought, uh, which is something we'll talk about in future episodes. But angels have implications for all of those things. So if you are a student or a teacher. Uh, wondering why angels are important. I hope we've already shown you why they're important. Um, and I hope this conversation will show you uh, all the ways that it uh, intersects with lots of other disciplines besides theology. Oh, absolutely. So what I'm hoping we can get to is in the, looking at further commenting on Christ's reconfiguration of, of the spiritual order uh, and the restoration uh, of that. And how, how does that influence the way Christians view empires, nationalism uh as well as the artistic imagination even patronage right of the yes, angels the saints uh not to mention our epistemology so how we look at reality and then also uh, well the epistemology in terms of how we look at the cosmos so the sun moon the stars uh as well as um within a new scientific and literary lens as well so how do those all fit together uh yes, that, that's right uh yeah physical science uh yeah. angels do have bearing on that uh which we'll touch on today and uh and in our next episode yeah, which, so i yeah, uh, probably never knew that but uh okay so there you may not have but that's why this is classical catholic education in podcast form and if you uh happen to just this is your first episode you've happened to just drop in late to the class uh, Scholar McClarney, do you want to just kind of recap the last couple episodes in a couple of minutes here? Uh, okay, very quickly then. Uh, so, looking at um, in the Greek world, we have this uh, the Logoi, uh, who um, fitting in with how do we understand the forms, the Platonic conception of them. Uh, we see attempts by Philo of Alexandria to reconcile that with the Old Testament and seeing uh, the angels then becoming uh, the, the Logoi, essentially, so the forms in, in reality. So how do you uh, interact between the immaterial and the material? Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, we have the divine council uh, before God, uh, and we have the spiritual order created alongside the physical realm as well and the whole story of salvation history then is the restoration of that following the fall because of the fall not just of humanity but of the angels as well and so uh, this is the story that christ then fulfills in in the new testament and we see this through the lens of well, obviously the New Testament, but certain Psalms as well point to this. Uh, so Psalm 8, uh, Psalm 82, and, and others uh, pointing to the restoration, or at least anticipation of this restoration of the spiritual order, which we see happening uh, finally in the son of Adam, who is born amongst us. And what happens then is the defeat of 
the spiritual powers as well, the principalities, the powers, the cosmocrats, and as we see in Galatians and elsewhere, uh, the stoichia or the spiritual uh, elements or forces of this world have now lost their power. All right, so so yeah, the, the world is shot through with angels. Every rock and river has angels in it, according to a one Alexandrian tradition, and nations have angels in them. Uh, often fallen angels or uh, um, hostile forces to God, uh, Christ has triumphed over them and uh, raised us to a certain dignity with the faithful angels. Yep. And uh, in the future, we're going to hear uh, in another episode from Dr. McClarney about uh, how Mary, Queen of Heaven, fits into this. Because uh, when you understand this whole kind of angelic understanding of the cosmos and history, patronage of the saints makes a lot more sense and the queenship of Mary makes a lot more sense. Yeah, which which might not be intuitive uh, when we think of hierarchy of being. Uh, think of God, angels, uh, perhaps uh, well humans and other other creatures and so on. How is it that um, yeah? How does that how does that all fit in? So I don't know if we want to jump into hierarchy right away. Or well, I think that was we... such a beautiful segue. We really shouldn't <laughs> let it go. We okay. should seize the seize the moment right here. All right. So the word hierarchy in the first place. So let's just today we're going to talk about way Christian theologians have unpacked these themes that are in Scripture in the Old and New yeah. Testament. Uh, so first off, we start with pseudo Dionysus the Areopagite. Now yeah. Dionysus the Areopagite uh, is in Scripture. He's in the Book of Acts. There is <laughs> there's texts attributed to him. But I, I think, is would it be fair to say they're universally regarded as not being written by? That's right. Yeah, they're yeah. they're a later writer. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if. It, That's why they put the pseudo. Send us an email if you think that this was really the guy in the Book of Acts. First century. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when, when about what do we think it was written? Uh, you're looking at four hundreds or something like this, right? Okay. So so um, now the connection though is sanguine because uh, at the. Um, Mars Hills, uh, the Areopagus. This is where Paul is speaking about the resurrection. At least that's the end of his uh, uh, his talk. It falters as soon. Mm -hmm. Like the Greeks are into all sorts of ideas, mm -hmm. but they don't like the idea of a resurrection of the body. They're cool with angels. They they like the idea of the soul, but not the body. Mm -hmm. And so uh, yeah, Dionysus is the one who sticks around at the end right, to hear more Act, from Paul. This is in Act 17, the first yeah. time Paul speaks to a kind of Gentile audience, and he opens by kind of addressing them philosophically, and yeah, they're into it until he gets into the resurrection, as you uh, mentioned. Yeah. That's, a, that's a bridge too far for the Greeks who are not so big on the body, but Dionysus hangs on. Yeah, so thinking, okay, now going back to hierarchy then, well, he, so we have this text that purports to be from Dionysus, and the theme there, I guess, would be that, uh, again, it's a philosophical bridge with what Christ has revealed to us about the angels, and uh, there's a lot in this text. Um, what, what, what's the title of it exactly, again? It's, uh, uh, the, uh, that's a good question. I think it's called On the Heavenly Hierarchies or something okay. like that. I ought to have double-checked this, but anyways, yeah. he coins the word hierarchy, or at least it's the first usage we have of it. Okay. Uh, and where he describes the, well, of course, the word hierarchy, uh, it's from, ha, well, I have it in here in front of me, uh, Hira, right, the sacred rites, like a high priest, right? Okay. Heroes, right? Oh, and okay. Then, uh, like Hera, yeah, and okay. then uh, Arcane, 
which means to rule, yep. much like the Archons. Yes. Uh, what was yep. it? And uh, we have Archangels and yes. Skullarks, right? Yep. We have Archs as, as yep. rulers. So That's right. Bish the hierarchies. Arch bishops. Yeah. Right, Archbishops, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we have, uh, arch, we have Arch Enemies. Yes, that's right. Arch Nemesis. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you and I, uh, I guess, uh, have our own, maybe we yeah. could say. Um, but uh, we'll take on some of our Arch Enemies in future episodes, I think. But yeah. the hierarchy is the. Uh, the structure of the angelic hosts, according to Dionysus, right? Yeah. It's a very mystical text, right? Yeah. Uh, that claims to get, say, well, you know, the angels are organized into uh, nine choirs. I think it's the language that's used. Okay, yeah, right? yeah. Um, So it's three groups of three. It's a very yeah. Trinitarian, right? Yeah. The highest orders are the seraphim, cherubim, and the thrones. The middle order are the dominions, virtues, and powers. And then the lowest orders are the principalities, archangels, and angels. So Dionysus purports to know all this and to break this down and say, these are the, the ways the angels are organized. This is the heavenly hierarchy. And that's the origin of the word hierarchy, in fact. It's, in, it's angelic in its very origins. Oh, there we go. Uh, now, this catches on and it's widely used. We'll talk about an example of where it's used in literature later. But it's not universally accepted necessarily, is it? No. Well, like, let's say someone like Augustine, for instance, uh, he'll certainly accept the idea of hierarchy. Absolutely. Hierarchy of being and so on. God obviously being... Uh, to which all other beings are oriented towards. Uh, and the more that we participate in the good, uh, the more that uh, we are uh, drawn closer to God. But he's not, he's not going to go with, uh, you know, naming out, numerating, you know, these mm -hmm. different ranks and so on. Like, I mean, they're mentioned in Scripture. Uh, cherubim, Seraphim's only mentioned once. But, uh, yeah, so he's, he doesn't actually follow uh, prescriptively this this nine choirs which uh, you know resonates too with uh paul you know the nine yes. heavens layer uh, yes. levels of heaven and so on so he's not going to delve into that too much because oh. primarily because it's just we don't have enough in scripture yes. that reveals that to us mm. yeah. there's a real question here about what do we need to know what is valuable to know uh, some people are very very interested in prying into these kind of matters yeah. and a certain degree of knowledge of them is necessary yeah. and helpful well, yeah uh, but uh god has revealed what we need to know and arguably he hasn't revealed uh as much as dionysius seems to think right right <laughs> but but i mean uh, that doesn't mean we can't contemplate the idea or, or think further about it so give you an example when augustine is thinking about the angels and well when were they created because in genesis 1 well we made the case made the argument that mm -hmm. you can see that connecting with the stars and the moon and the sun uh, that are placed in in the heavens uh, Augustine is going to actually back up a little bit to day one as opposed to day four for the creation of the angels. And he says it's uh, most likely the angels were created when God said, let there be light. Mm. Now, interesting enough, he doesn't say that they're created in the fullness of uh, or perfected. So he creates them as angels of, of light. Uh, but uh, until you see the, and this is evident or symbolized by God separating the, the light from the darkness, uh, this is the angels are given the opportunity to exercise their will. And those that choose to abide in truth are the ones who then uh, contemplate God face to face and abide in the fullness of, of life. Whereas those who decide not to in that, that great rebellion uh, they don't, so they're separated. Mm. Uh, so that's how, that's how that works, yeah. Which which we'll get into later, but that suggests that there is a um, sequence within the life of the angels. Yes. Uh, there's some kind of chronology. Yeah, that's uh, right. But we'll get into that more sure, in the sure, future. Sure. Uh, and, I, and again, uh, we will not really talk about this, but 
it's worth, I don't know who this starts with, but I know it's in Anselm, the idea that um, basically God has to create the church in order to replace all the angels who fell. Uh, okay, I, I yeah. think Anselm speculates. He doesn't say for sure, but he says, yeah. well, maybe the number of Christians who will be saved is like exactly the number yes. of angels who well, fell. Well, or that, whatever. that is actually a, a question that comes up in Augustine. I, that's and, what and, I thought. And, 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 and as well. Yeah. So uh, in there, the ultimate answer that uh, Augustine gives is, well, we don't know the number. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. uh, which, which I like because mm. uh, if you go, again, reading the book of uh, Revelation, mm. uh, you can see certain numbers are mentioned, mm. uh, but then you see there's myriads of myriads and mm. then a multitude of the, uh, the I couldn't see or you know, couldn't count. Mm. So... Yeah, we're not given a, a final number. So to the extent that we are to think about and speculate about the angels, it's to the extent it's profitable for our salvation, not just out of idle curiosity about the cosmos, stuff we don't need to know. Right, right. Uh, which hopefully is what we're doing today. Yeah. Uh, case in point would be what uh, Origen says about yes. uh, nationalism. Right. Okay, so with Origen, uh, just to give a bit of context, there's one of the early critics of Christianity is a guy named Celsus. Mm -hmm. And so he, he's, he lives before Origen, but he's such a striding critic that Origen feels obliged to still respond to him. And, and he responds to him, I should say, so thoroughly. We don't have Celsus's book, I don't think. Right. The only yeah. record we have of it is Origen's answer, but I think he yeah. answers every single thing Celsus says so we can reconstruct the whole book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how thorough Origen is in his rebuttal yeah. to Celsus. So. so one of the critiques he makes against Christians is that they're anomic and impious. Now, let's just explain what that means. Anomic nomos is a Greek for law, and so they're without law. They're lawless. They're not following the law of the land. This would be civic as well as religious. They're, they're taught and political. They're all interwoven. You, you don't separate them mm -hmm. out. So not follow, not um, worshiping the local gods would be a civic, social, and religious, political, all-in-one um, disobedience, active disobedience. Um, and they're also seen as um, well, both impious and anomic, right? So uh, and Origen points out, well, yeah, you're right. We don't uh, run for public office. We don't, we eschew uh, military service. And so Celsus is like, you can't do that. Uh, you're, you're not fit for the patria, right? You're not actually well, patriotic. And so Origen's answer is quite uh, fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you want to jump in, but basically oh, he's saying, ahead, he's saying that, uh, well, actually, no, uh, you're, yeah, we do have the greater good in mind of our homeland. We do pray for our political leaders, but we have a heavenly homeland and our um, impetus, our, our movement in life is for the greater good. And so our act, and you can see this, he tells us, this, certain uh, like pagan priests, for instance, don't um, have military service. So same thing with us. We do have a role to play in society, and this is part of it. So um, this is uh, what some of the things that Origen's pointing out uh, to him. And now the question then becomes, what about the nations because again go back to our previous talks but there in the old testament uh, that's a whole conception of angels associated with different nations so now that the cosmos has been reconfigured in christ what happens next because now our um, citizenship is in heaven uh which angels are we going to follow uh or, or do we get caught up in nationalism, so um, are following the angel of a nation, as we see. Um, mm -hmm. Well, right. and this is the point that, um, again, as discussed, Deuteronomy is clear that the the nations God creates them at Babel and assigns angels to them. 
So there's angelic realities behind the nations. Now, of course, Christ is higher than the nations, right? And we belong to Christ. We belong to the heavenly kingdom, not to this world. Uh, now, what's very interesting, and Origen picks up on this, uh, and this is a theme that, again, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, the late Pope Benedict, talks about in his book, uh, Unity of the Nations and the Vision of the Church Fathers. Uh, in the New Testament, Rome is spoken of as Babylon. Right. Right, uh, yeah. First Peter, uh, Peter says, you know, the church here at Babylon greets you. Well, we as Catholics know where Peter was, right? He was in the Church of Rome as a bishop there. Uh, Revelation 17 also talks about you know, the woman uh, who sits on seven hills as, you know, the whore of Babylon. Well, the city on seven hills is Rome, and any, everyone would have recognized that. Uh, now, why is the New Testament referring to Rome as Babylon, a kingdom that's long gone in historical terms? Well, according to Origen, it's because the same angelic powers that were behind, the same spiritual realities that were behind Babylon are now operative in Rome. And that's the situation that the uh, Christians find themselves in, is uh, they are subjects of Rome, but Rome is ultimately an angelic reality that's um, ooh, not identical with God, somewhat hostile to God, uh, fallen. I mean, it's, it's an apocalyptic beast, like we see in Revelation yeah. 13. Yeah. It, yeah, and so that's part of Origen's point, is that we're resisting that. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Christians in the... Uh, the ecumenical world. Uh, ekonome is, is the Greek hmm. term that they use. Uh, oikos is a term for house. Uh, and so this is, ekonome means um, the inhabited world. So so the living space. So without in, in this in the ecumenical world, uh, the living space of reality, Christians inhabit it. They're, 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 but they, their allegiance is no longer to those angels. Hmm. Their allegiance is no longer to Babylon. Hmm. Right? So it's being reconfigured um, in, in in Christ, so they're resisting this mm. subordination mm -hmm. of humanity uh, to the angels, mm -hmm. uh, the fallen angels, right, mm -hmm. uh, represented by by Babylon. So this is part of his response to Celsus is what what's going on here. Yes, absolutely. And we can, we'll talk in the future, probably in another podcast series, about what that means when the empire becomes Christian. Um, you know, the, the Constantine is Christian, but the devil is not. Uh, yes, but yes. That's, that's an interesting separate yeah. question uh, that uh, Pope Benedict also talks about Augustine's response to that in his book. Um, for now, there's, we just want to talk about other speculation sure. about angels okay. and the okay. church fathers. Uh, yeah, so yeah. why not take us uh, down the road of angelification? Yes. So where we see this most clearly is in Tertullian. Now, Tertullian, if you've heard of him before, but... Uh, he's not a church father per se. He's an ecclesiastical writer. He is. Now, mm -hmm. you've heard of the word Trinity, I'm sure. Um, we sure hope so. Okay, how about sacrament? Uh, yeah, that's come across that one. Yeah. You have? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, if you heard of those words, those come from Tertullian. So right, he's yes. the one who coins them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and, and others, theological words that we, we take for, for granted. Sure, sure. So, yeah, he's an important writer, uh, but he is a rigorist and he ends up joining the Montanists, the group. Uh, so, so he's, and his writings mm -hmm. are in a period of 15, 16 years and they abruptly end. Mm -hmm. uh, but. Uh, what's interesting about him, he's a lawyer, he's also a Latin writer, he would have known Greek as well, we, we don't have his Greek writings, there's a lot of ones, but when it comes to um, his angelification. So now part also of his um, 
epistemology. He's a little more influenced perhaps by the Stoic uh, view of reality as opposed to the Platonic. So he views angels as having uh, having a spiritual body. And why that is important is because the soul as well in Tertullian has uh, a physical element as well. All right, so if you have that in the back of your mind, uh, this is what he says about humanity. He still grants that we're body and soul, absolutely. Oh, we're, there's a difference between body and soul for Tertullian. And he says that humans um, by nature um, are, are uh, form, so our soul is actually higher than the spiritual material. Uh, so in other words, uh, we have a higher form than the angels uh, as our souls are originally created. Uh, our flesh, however, no. Uh, so our bodies are lower than angels, but the reality is we are in a fallen world. So that we have fallen, now our, both our body and our soul are in a lower state than uh, the angels. All right, you with me? I think okay, so. Okay, all right. So um, he does not, by, by angelification, he's not saying, so this is clear, and Tertullian's clear about this as well, he's not saying humans will lack corporeality. In fact, Tertullian has a certain type of corporeality that he assumes angels have as well. Right. But but he's not saying we'll become angels. Okay. He's saying we'll become like angels, as, as, Christ, as himself Christ says. says. Yeah. So how does that work then? Well, what he says is, I mean, he still believes in grace. He still believes in the need of, of justification. But the way he sees it, unlike, say, Irenaeus, he sees this as an imitatio Christi. So we have to yeah. imitate Christ and in participating in the imitation of Christ. It's not a... Um, uh, how would you say that, uh, following rules necessarily, but in imitating Christ, we participate mm -hmm. in the life of Christ. So it's not an extrinsic morality that he's offering here, but in as much as we imitate Christ, we participate in his life. Now, in the eschaton, so the day of judgment, of the end of time, what will happen is those who have followed, imitated Christ, and uh, will receive back from him a perfected flesh. Ah, so okay. the body that is uh, lower originally created than the angels will become back perfected and it will be the house of uh, it re, um, it's it's uh, well housing the perfected soul as well so the souls which will now enjoy the image uh, of God and all of its benefits in its fullness right. so this is kind of a uh, how would you say it a, a return to our our, our order, our, our how we're okay. uh, supposed supposed to be created. So mm -hmm. so it's it's put it another way, it's it's a very unique way of thinking of salvation. Uh, some of our listeners might be familiar with theosis if you're familiar with the mm -hmm. divinization in the East. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, so so this is this is different. So but it's it's a parallel idea sure. uh, that that so angelification is what Tertullian says. And, and how is that received by uh, the other early Christian writers? As far as I know, no one really follows him in okay. that particular sense. Again, he has certain unique ideas, but mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to see how he talks about that in terms of uh, our salvation and, and re reconfiguring our nature to prelapsarian uh, mm -hmm. plan. Now, you do hear, though, um, a type of angelification spoken of in Ambrose and Jerome, but it's in a different context altogether. And there they have a more closely consonant with what Christ is talking about in terms of marriage. Sure. You'll be like angels. So yeah. Ambrose and Jerome both connect being like angels or angelification, if you like, to consecrated life. Mm -hmm. So vows of chastity, 
virginity. Uh, and so the, uh, the hermits and the virgins then are the ones who are like the angels, says mm-hmm. Ambrose. And, and Jerome goes on this at, at further length. So this is, again, the idea that the angels are useful to us, uh, not as an object of idle speculation, but moral examples. And moral uh, example, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which we've talked about before. Now, uh, Tertullian's idea of embodied angels, I think a lot of people probably de facto are Tertullianists. Yeah, that's, and they, think they, point, they probably actually. do think of, well, it's like ghosts, right? People sort of yeah. think of them as being made of some kind of spiritual lace. I don't know, like some flimsy yeah, material yeah. substance, like less real than we are in some ways, like Casper the Ghost. Yeah, sure, um, sure. And even John Milton kind of seems to see the angels as embodied in uh, Paradise Lost. Uh, much like Tertullian, Milton is uh, theologically anomalous in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll jump ahead here because Aquinas sure. takes a very different view on the angels than, than Tertullian would. Right. Uh, now he says... Oh, that, are we getting to the pinhead uh, angel question? We're, we're working oh, we're our way there. Okay, we're we're working there our way right. there. Yeah, okay. yeah, for sure. We'll be, there, there's some context we need. All right, let's get the context. Okay. Because the, the whole... Well, for example, that yeah. question that supposedly the medievals debated, although I am not actually aware that anyone ever did, yeah. of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Yeah. I, I think that's an enlightenment uh, kind of a myth yeah, yeah. Uh, in principle it's kind of a good question okay um, yeah. in the sense that well as there is an answer to it let's say all right uh, and it gets to exactly this point uh, about do they take up space right do all angels right. take up space can they grow or shrink or whatever the case is well first of all aquinas does not believe that angels are embodied at all right, right. they are each of them is a spirit and uh, following the Christian Platonic Aristotelianism, uh, you know, that Aquinas adapts in general, um, spirits are forms for yeah. Aquinas. Uh, of course, a substance, right, as we know it, is a combination of form and matter. Uh, right. When we die, according to Aquinas, we have our souls are, you know, in heaven, but that's just the forms. They're incomplete in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they need the matter to come back, which is the general resurrection. Now, angels are pure form. Right. right. So they don't have or need bodies. There's nothing deficient about them. Right? Yeah. Now, I, I have a bit of a pet peeve. I've spoken to you about this. People talking about the biblically accurate angels, right? Uh, saying, oh, angels aren't, you know, humanoid beings with wings. They're wheels within wheels, you know, like we see in Ezekiel. Yeah. Well, actually, in Scripture, we see angels looking like all kinds of things. Sometimes yes. they do look like yeah. humans. Uh, sometimes they are flames of fire. Uh, sometimes right. they're wheels within wheels. Sometimes they're beasts, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, for Aquinas, this is eminently um, understandable because for him, every angel is its own species. Yeah. There's not some species called angel and all these different examples are all instantiations of it angel as we've discussed is it's a title of a function right it's messenger yes it's even used you know to refer to jesus or john the baptist in various cases or even to us in some ways as bearers of the evangel yeah so angel is just it just refers to the it's a functional title it's not an ontological title and aquinas's argument goes roughly this way um all right i have the idea of a gingerbread man yeah that's one idea okay okay I have that idea, it's a singular idea, and yes. in my mind, it's immaterial, it's just one. Yeah. Now, I can then take the matter of gingerbread and make as many gingerbread men as, I, as, I, as my heart desires, as my stomach desires. Oh, right. I can multiply that infinitely. But why? Is it because I have new ideas? No, it's, it's still the same single idea of a gingerbread man. The form of gingerbread man is still singular in my mind. But matter allows me to multiply it. All right. right? That's why I can make infinite numbers of gingerbread men. Same with uh, 
well, anything in matter, right? Cats, tigers, dogs, humans, chairs. There's a singular idea. Matter is what allows you to multiply them. Right. right. However, since angels are not material, there yeah. can't be a God has an idea of angel and then multiplies them by giving them matter because they're right. not material. Okay. Which means every single angel is its own unique species. Which means, I think Peter Kraft says it this way, that each angel is as dissimilar to each other as a cat is from a dog or from a human, right? They're all right. vastly different. Okay. Which, which means, uh, you know, when you think of the great chain of being and the great hierarchy of being, yeah. you know, you think of beneath human beings. Think of, you know, all the different kinds of species there are beneath us yeah. uh, on, on the great cosmic uh, pyramid. You yeah, know? yeah. And then between us and God, wouldn't we expect a similar diversity, let's say, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. on the upward scale from us? Right. So between us and God, there's as much variety as there is below us and, I don't know, sludge or whatever. Sure, sure. So yeah. each angel is its own species because they're immaterial. And that is generally, uh, the church has adapted that way of thinking, I'd say, more than it has Tertullian's way of thinking. Uh, right. Angels yeah. are immaterial. Given that they're immaterial, and this goes back to what we were saying before about yeah. um, Augustine talking about the first day of creation, you know, yes. um, the, the angels are created, something then occurs, yes. and then they some of them fall. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, well, again, Aquinas is following Aristotle, right? Time is the measure of motion, and that's the motion of, you know, material things for the most part. Yeah. That's how we think of time. It's material things move around. Uh, that's Aristotle. It seems to have been vindicated by Einstein. It's not how Newton thinks or... Descartes thinks, but now physics has caught up to Aristotle for the time being. Okay, very right? good. So, so we've got eternity, which is God's yeah. timelessness, yeah. right? Um, and immovability. Then there's time, which is motion. It's pure motion, right? Well, what about the angels? Because they're immaterial, but they're not timeless like God is. Or for that matter, human, you know, the saints, right? They're yeah. currently immaterial. They don't have their bodies, for the most part, other than maybe, you know, Enoch and... Uh, Elijah and Moses, maybe. Um, but are they like God in the sense of being outside of time? I mean, that seems not true. And yet they're out of time in some kind of sense because somehow Our Lady can hear uh, prayer requests millions at a time at once. Yeah. Uh, well, Aquinas suggests there's such a thing called the Avum, A-E-V-U-M, which is related to the word for age. I think of medieval, right? right. Between the Middle Ages, right? Yeah. Um, which is... Uh, how does he phrase it exactly? So, you know, let's say eternity is utterly unchanging, time is utterly changing. Avum is unchanging being, but sort of a change of place. Hmm. So there's a kind of sequence that's allowed. So there is time in Avum then? Is that what you're saying? Not the way we mean time. Oh, I think okay. you would have to call it something analogical because they're not moving. They're not locomoting anyway. Uh, there's no... Because time is connected with motion. That's right, right yeah. Okay. Like, like locomotion in the sense right. that we think of, right? Or even motion in the sense, I guess, of thinking. You know, you have a series of thoughts, I guess. That's, that kind of creates time. And they have a sequence of thoughts, but it's outside of our material time. It's outside of, a, it's outside of God's um, material cosmos. So okay. there's sequence... So you could call it a kind of time in that way, but there's no locomotion involved. Hmm. Um, so in some sense, you know, I, I, does that mean Our Lady is uh, passing on one prayer request at a time to God, but she's sort of outside of time? Yeah. Uh, perhaps uh, that's something, you know, that's a little bit beyond us. Uh, yeah. But it's worth noting that uh, there is that kind of middle period between eternity and time that Aquinas acknowledges. So that we neither think... we. 
we don't have the problem of either thinking about the saints and the angels have the same eternity that God does, but it's also not like in Bruce Almighty, where yeah. uh, Jim Carrey is like getting the flood of all the prayers yeah, at once, yeah. right? And, and he can't just, concentrate anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so is this a little bit like the real distinction between essence and existence, uh, in that he's going to distinguish between uh, outside of time and then time below on earth i guess chronological time and then there's some other uh realm of the avum i suppose where there's this middle ground of not really chronological time but also not eternity yeah i think that's that's as best as we can get at and and, and i mean here's another analogy and, and peter craft explains this kind of helpfully um so how do, how do angels move like how right. do they you know get from Persia to, yeah. uh, right, the, Daniel talks about yeah. this, right, the, sure. the conflict in heaven, right? Well, according to Aquinas, okay, think of your own thoughts. So just now, I mentioned Persia, yep. and uh, I'm sure your mind jumped to uh, images. The, the of, Prince uh, of Persia. Yeah, Prince of Persia, either yeah. the video game or the, uh, you know, images of Xerxes from your illustrated yeah. Bible when you were a child or something like yeah. that. Well, your mind was able to instantly move from place to place. Yes. With no intermediary. Like, no, if your yeah. body wanted to get to Persia, there'd be a lot of intermediary steps. But right. your mind didn't need that. It was able to jump immediately. There. Sure. Okay. He, Aquinas says angels are kind of like that. Because they're immaterial, they can m move, quote unquote, from one place to another instantly. They're okay. not bound by that temporal um, uh, or, or material locomotion. Right. Uh, you know, uh, kind of you know the casino's paradox, right? Having to yes. having to travel an infinite amount of uh, land before you get anywhere. And interestingly, uh, Mortimer Adler, the great uh, philosopher, editor of the Great Book series, who became yeah. Catholic at the end of his life and called you know was an Aristotelian too, he recounts in his book on angels that he told this to Niels Bohr, okay. uh, the great physicist, yeah. right? the great yeah. quantum physicist. And Bohr said that's incredible because that's exactly um, how we think electrons work. Right. Okay. Electrons can locate from one place to another without moving through the intermediary space in between. Okay. It's, or at least they seem to. Seem yeah, to. It's an epistemological question, I guess, but yeah, yeah. they seem to immediately locate from one okay. place to another without traveling in the inter in the space okay. in between the two of them. So, so there's some analog there in the, the atomic theory. Well Crave speculates that uh, yeah, the closer yeah. you get to that, it's sort of the closer you're getting to I guess to the Avum almost. Right? Okay. Um or at the very least, it shows that by thinking about the angels, uh, the scholastics got to quantum physics. Right. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, whatever that means. And speaking of physics, uh, and this is where we'll move towards our favorite thing, the stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Dr. McClarney explained pretty well how in the Bible, the heavenly hosts um, mean more than just the stars and the sun yes. and the moon. Yeah. There's also seem to refer to the angelic powers behind them. Okay, so what does that mean? Well. Aristotle, briefly, and I'm not going to get into him in detail because it's confusing and in a sense doesn't matter, but he thinks that there's the prime mover, which yeah. is God, we would we say. We would call God. We would yeah. call God. He has not the same view of God that we do, but he does have an idea of a prime sure. mover. Yeah. Then there's this idea that he has that all of the life on Earth or whatever comes from the stars. Like The stars are basically emitting energy and it goes through the uh, layers of the cosmos and comes down to Earth, and that's where right. we get all of our. So, in a sense, in a material way, the stars are the source of all other motion and life in the universe. Okay. Well, the prime mover must be moving the stars. Right. But the stars also sort of seem self-moved. Right. So Aquinas recounts. Aquinas, if you want to read more on this, Aquinas has a book actually called "On Separated Substances," which is what Aristotle calls them, um, where Aristotle speculates that there's the prime mover and then there's the first movers. 
that are moved by the prime mover because they have a desire for the prime mover. Okay. They seem to have... A, Aristotle thinks the stars have a kind of intelligence of their own. He thinks they're alive, basically. Right. And So desiring. They're desi- right? they, they desire the prime mover. That's exactly Which it, allows... Yes. And that's what moves them. That's what moves them, which in turn emanates... All the radiates life and energy right down to, to downwards all on the way through the car. It, it kind of trickles down, right, I guess, down to the rest of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I like it. Um, yeah, it's a neat idea. So that's the that and that's and of course there's the whole question that they have at the time of you know why are things in the sky moving around? They don't right? move down on Earth. So ah. do they have their own intelligence? Are they them? You know, because they move in an orderly they, fashion. Yeah, right? they seem so, to move in an orderly way, yeah. and they don't seem to be moved by anything right. and so forth. Uh, now we'll talk about that more in our next episode. Okay. Uh, but what's interesting is that in 1277 you have the famous condemnations of the Bishop of Paris, where uh, yes. a whole bunch of theological and scientific and philosophical propositions are condemned as heretical. Okay. Interesting aside, a lot of people would say that you know condemning scientific propositions as heretical was what limited science. The Galileo yeah. affair and all that. Yes. Uh, but Pierre Duhem, the great, um, well, he was a scientist in his own right, also yeah. a Catholic historian and philosopher. He did a lot of important work with electromagnetism. But Pierre Duhem says that the 1277 condemnations are actually the beginning of Western science. Okay. Because before that, Western science was trapped in a bunch of Aristotelian concepts. Interesting. And the fact that those concepts were now condemned as heretical meant that yeah. science was now free to investigate yeah. on its own. For example, okay. like... Well, explain to us what got condemned. Well, so, 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 for yeah. example, Aristotle says that a vacuum is impossible. Okay. Right? Nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, well, the basically, the, the Bishop of Paris said... That's putting a limitation on God's omnipotence. Therefore, it's heretical. Okay. You can't say that. You can't say that vacuum is, is metaphysically impossible. Right. Well, once that's allowed, well, goodness, that's that's physics now, right? Like, physics yeah. can now explore that concept of a vacuum and all that that entails, right? Or, uh, Proposition 73, uh, it's condemned the idea that the heavenly bodies have souls, right? That they have their own appetitive powers. Uh, okay. It's condemned to say that just like an animal is moved by desiring, so also is the heavens. That's okay. heretical. Because Aristotle said that the the the, um, the stars uh, are moved because of their desire for the prime mover. Yeah, they're ensouled and they want God, I guess, and that's what moves them around. Okay. Uh, and I can't tell you exactly why the Bishop of Paris thought that was heretical, except maybe that it was too close to paganism, I guess, to say okay. that the stars maybe were alive on their own. But, okay, so now you can't... As a Christian, you're no longer allowed to say that the stars have their own souls. No, but they, souls. But they okay. still seem to act with will and intelligence. Right. So what's the alternative? Well, it must be that there are intelligences pushing them around like the angels. And that becomes kind of the standard scholastic line. That the angels are the ones pushing the stars around, basically, and carrying the stars. Which is fits very nicely with scripture, right? right which right. has this tight connection between the stars yeah. and the angels. Yeah. Uh, Dante adapts this view. He talks about it in his... Yeah. Uh, Convivio. Uh, in chapter 4 he goes into detail about this. He explains all the science of uh, how the angels are pushing around the stars. And then, then of course, it shows up in his Divine Comedy. Right. Uh, in the Paradiso. Uh, yeah. Of course, he has the nine planets, and each planet yeah. has its own sphere, and as he ascends through it, he sees souls on each level. Yes. Um, yeah. And then at the top, he gets to the uh, Imperium. Right. right? Uh, he's a, right before he gets to God and the beatific vision, he gets to the realm of the angels. And what does he find there? He finds the nine choirs of angels that right. Dionysus identified. Yeah. And there's a parallelism between the nine choirs of angels and the nine planets and the nine spheres. Right. Each one's being moved right by the angels there. So yeah. that's soaked right into Dante's whole cosmology. You can't understand Dante unless you understand that understanding of the angels and how they were involved with the cosmos. 
uh, can you think of anywhere else where this shows up in Christian literature? Uh, well, I mean, we, like in Shakespeare, for instance, we'll see this in uh, different, different places with the stars. I mean, not quite the same context as the Divine Comedy, obviously, but say like in Henry IV, Part One, uh, there's this famous scene in uh, scene two of Act One where uh, um, Hal, uh, so mm. this is the... Um, the prodigal prince, if you like, he um, in the beginning uh, there's this mention of Phoebus, who is uh, Apollo, right, uh, mm -hmm. the sun god, uh, and so uh, and this is a contrast to the walking by the moon, right, uh, by night, and this is Falstaff, uh, Falstaff, and it, the, the scene as seen too is in a tavern, uh, desolate place, it, it something like like Moss Eisley or something like this mm -hmm. of, 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 of ancient London, and so um, here they are, and Falstaff is planning to rob pilgrims of all people to, to fuel his licentious behavior uh, filling himself with with uh, chicken and, uh, and and wantonness for women and all the rest his lifestyle is going to be fueled by uh, by the moon so mm -hmm. he's going to go by the moon mm -hmm. uh, he's and, a lunatic there, there you go mm -hmm. yeah 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 and so um, at the end of that scene there's this soliloquy by Hal who says he will rise like the sun, which which it's a bookend to that scene where Phoebus is mentioned at the beginning and then the sun is mentioned at the end again, S-U-N, sun. Uh, mm -hmm. Now this S-O-N, sun, uh, will rise, no longer obscured by the clouds, but his glimmer, he will glimmer, he will shine forth, uh, redeeming the time. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting uh, connection there where Shakespeare's taking the ancient cosmology and bringing mm -hmm. it in as well, and then making the spiritual connection between how we live life here below mm -hmm. in consonance with the sun or the moon. Sure. And what are we going to... Or if you're Macbeth and you say, stars hide your fires. Right. right before you're about to commit the murder of, uh, well, the king who represents God's uh, reign on earth. Or he rules by the grace of grace. That's know. right. Uh, yeah. More contemporary, we're, we're talking yep. mostly about the Middle Ages, but we'll close with modern medieval writers, I Okay, guess. sure. Uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Right. right? I've, yes. I've got the exact line here because I wanted okay. to do it justice, right? Yeah. In our world, Eustace said, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Yeah. Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Right. So it's matter then. Mm -hmm. So it's some ball of gas. Eustace describes the matter, but... But he misses out on the form. Misses the form, exactly. What it is, yeah. Uh, what are they teaching you in these schools these days? It's all there in Plato. You know? That's right, that's right. Yeah. Uh, now, what about uh, Tol uh, Lewis's friend J.R.R. Tolkien? You want to speak to that and the angels in... Uh, in in, let's say the Silmarillion. Or... Yeah, well, it's shot through his entire uh, world. Uh, Arda, well, even beginning, Iluvatar uh, at the very beginning, it's speaking about choirs. Well, it's it's all singing. It's right, song. Yes. That's mm -hmm. the one thing that readers of the Silmarillion first notice is, uh, oh, there's a lot of singing going on here. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Melchior has uh, a discordant theme, uh, which he's... Melchior not, being kind of the devil, essentially, right? Or, that, or is that over Well, well that would be, uh, yeah, that would be allegory. Now, okay. now, however, let's, let's uh, quick caveat here. Uh, in the second uh, edition uh, to The Lord of the Rings, uh, Calvin, or sorry, uh, Tolkien uh, clearly points out that uh, no, I'm not writing allegory. Uh, he has a disdain for allegory. Cordially dislikes allegory. Yes, yeah. Uh, he does, uh, what he is doing is application. Mm -hmm. So it's not allegory, it's application. Uh, all right. That being said, that, that um, 
none of our scholars have pointed out, there are some elements of his writing where he does seem to have some other idea in mind that he's corresponding to. Uh, so um, the Saxons and um, writers of Rohan would be an example. But uh, here, uh, which Tolkien completely denied, he says, no, I do not have the Saxons in mind at all. And others are saying, surely that cannot be the case. Uh, there's so many parallels there. But um, yes, with Melkor, yeah, there seemed a lot of parallel with, with uh, Lucifer and the Fall. But Tolkien would, would not, I don't think, allow for that, or at least admit to it. Um, in <laughs> any case, um, Elupitar says uh, there will be another theme announced. Uh, which will redound to my glory. So this is discordant, uh, you, uh, so the music, uh, but it will uh, be brought into a greater symphony, uh, even with the fall. Now, the other, the 15 Valar, uh, and of course is one of them, uh, they all have a role in creation. So it's fascinating uh, mm -hmm. to see that the way Arda, Arda is just the, the world uh, that, that's created is shaped by the very character of these various angels mm -hmm. and, and, and their hierarchy uh, and their um, dispositions and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you just want to briefly comment on how Gandalf is an angel? Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're a different or order, uh, uh, well, literally an order, but uh, a different being, if you like. Uh, so they're not the Valar, they're the, the Maiar, all right? And so the, the, the Maiar, the Maiar. Uh, and so these are the other types of spiritual beings. So Sauron would be one as well uh, of the Maiar, uh, as is um, uh, Gandalf and, and the five wizards who are sent by Iluvatar into... Um, Middle Earth to help draw it back. Uh, so, so there that they they, yeah, they do have that kind of um, how would you call it eh, functionality as messengers mm -hmm. of of uh, yeah and and they're that they uh, intake uh, or take on while they're in there. Uh, I mean, there's some other differences going on as well, but it's an interesting kind of parallelism that uh, you can think of in its mm -hmm. cosmology. Well, it really it really shows how the angels. Um, excited his imagination well yeah yeah absolutely and and uh, I guess one other thing to point out though is that uh, well why didn't then the big strong angels like the Valar just come right down in there like Manway or someone um, or all eight why, why don't you just come in there and just kick Sauron out mm. after a while and uh, let's just get it on with the show well part of the answer we can speculate here but part of the answer is following uh, the great artist, God himself, who sends his son into the world, uh, why not send an angel, right? Mm -hmm. Why not send angels to rescue us from the powers of darkness, right? The fallen angels. Well, uh, as St. Athanasius would say, God became man so that man could become God. So redemption comes from within. Mm -hmm. uh, so God becomes one of us. Now, all right, let's t go back to Tolkien now. Uh, Tolkien too, the, the problems of Middle Earth cannot be solved from from the outside, it has to come from within. So it's the lowly uh, Samwise Gamgee, who, the servant of Frodo, who is the one who has his instrumental role in, in this process. So it's it's not this great being uh, out there, um, uh, you know, this, um, but uh, this this lowly hobbit uh, who is a gardener, who has this the fundamental uh, uh, role to play, which uh, which shows Tolkien's uh, love of the small and the local right? sure yeah and and also it's not too um i guess the danger could be uh, an over overly getting overly fascinated with the angelic mm -hmm. because it's not, that's not the point we're trying to make and essentially what we're trying to point out here is to further we don't want to end up like eustace 
right? Yes. Uh, Uses who just sees matter, who just sees the material, what his five senses report to him. What we're attempting to do is broaden our horizon to see reality as it is, mm -hmm. right? With, with a greater lens, a greater scope, which I think you probably want to talk about Tolkien's take on, on Guardian sure, Angels. Sure, I think we'll, we'll close with yeah, that. Yeah, because um, yeah. I think that's an example of his imagination being charged with this. He, he writes in a letter, yeah. uh, his letters are delightful, about yeah. sitting in church once and yeah. kind of getting distracted by seeing a little moat of dust floating in a ray of light. Yeah. And this idea occurs to him. Um, maybe, he's, and he admits this is speculation, sure. but perhaps the origin of Guardian Angels has an analogy to the Trinity, right? Um, in, this, in this particular image, here's how he describes it. He says, in his imagination, the ray was the guardian angel of the moat. The guardian angel, the, the ray of light was the guardian of this little piece of dust, right? Mm. Not a thing interposed between God and the creature. Now, this is important. It's not that there's God and then there's us, and the guardian angel is the intermediary or go-between between God and us, because that's that kind of Greek, like, you know, God doesn't want to dirty his hands with his creation, so he sends the angels to do it for them. Okay, yeah, now, yeah. The guardian, if you, yeah. we might think of the guardian angel that way, right? He's kind of doing God's work for him on his behalf or something. Yeah, yeah. Tolkien says, no, I, I prefer to think of it as it's not so much that the guardian angel is interposed between God and the creature, but actually the guardian angel, like the ray of light, is God's very attention itself personalized. And here's the analogy he draws. It's a parallel to the infinite. As the love between the Father and the Son, who are infinite and equal, is a person, right? The Holy Spirit. The yeah. Father and the Son love each other so much, yeah. it, it is a person. Spirates the Holy Spirit. Spirates, exactly. It proceeds from them both. So the love and attention of the light to the moat is a person that is both with us and in heaven. Just like a light, or the light is both where it shines upon and its source, right? finite but divine i.e angelic so god loves each one of us so intently that that right. love itself personalizes and that's what the guardian angel is okay he admits it's speculation but yeah. goodness isn't it a, a thrilling one right you know? and, yes, and, yes. and a and one that is so consonant with what we've been saying and with the whole christian message all right. yeah. and, and that would be why each one of us has our own unique guardian angel. Right. Because of God's special concentrated love shining down upon each one of us, each mote of dust that he loves so much. Right, right. It's all speculation, but it's wonderful speculation. And it gives rise to, I think in a line like that, you can see how the whole cosmology of Middle Earth, the whole history of Middle Earth arises from a mind like that, uh, baptized as it is in this understanding of creation and of God and of the angels. Absolutely, yeah. So is there anything you wanted to conclude with? or? Uh, I think a prayer. All right. Great. All right, Dr. McClarney, if you could please lead us yes. and our listeners in prayer. And let us pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was, was in the, the beginning, beginning is now, now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. And St. Isidore, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.